I'm Jill Shaw, and this is Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. I'm here today with Steve Cazella, the president of the Mass Inc. Polling Group. Steve has grown that organization from infancy to a nationally known and respected polling provider. He has led surveys for both industry and political campaigns and has earned recognition for his work from the U.S. Department of State. Today, we talk with him about a poll he recently published on how K-12 parents in Massachusetts feel about education during the pandemic. Hi, Steve. It's so great to have you here today. Glad to be here. So I, I actually, I haven't gotten to speak with anyone in polling since the election. So I have, I have a quick question about that, given that you're in the business. Do you, do you have a point of view on why the results of the presidential election were so different than uh, what the poll suggested they might be? Well, some of the some of it's going to take a while to figure out. To, to be honest, I mean, it's it, it. There are various theories that are are starting to float out there, but the thing that takes a while is, first of all, just waiting for all the margins to be finalized. Which, much to the frustration of many, we're still not quite there in some states. Um, not not even just certified, but even all the votes counted. You know, mm. that's the first step. Then looking at where the polls differed from those states is the next step, and trying to determine what the patterns are in the states where the polls missed versus where they didn't. Because mm. it's not really that they missed an equal amount everywhere. You know, our polls in Massachusetts, both in the Senate and the uh, presidential election were spot on, you know, and the polls in many states were spot on. Mm. Um, it's just a set of states where they weren't and where they created a, a higher sense of certainty for Joe Biden than I think was turned out to be true or a wider margin anyway. Uh, but what the what characteristics those states share and what the what characteristics the polls in those states share and how they're different from the states where the polls did better is something that I don't really, I don't think we really know yet. Um, it does take, it takes a frustratingly long time in, in many, <laughs> in many senses, um, you know, both for pollsters and for the general public, um, you know, polling is something, polling for elections is something which has one of the longest redemption cycles of, I think, any profession where if you get up to the plate and you swing and miss, then you, you know, it's two years before you get another swing. You know, there's not another at right. that three innings later. Right. Um, so we'll, we'll see. It's going to take a while, unfortunately. But I, I just say that our polls did very well. And I'm, I'm looking forward to, to finding out why polls in other states didn't. Yeah, it's interesting. And so as someone who runs a company that focuses on polls and surveying, um, folks in the community, what, what are the levers that you have to look at? I, I would imagine it is the types of questions you ask and the audience to whom you ask them. Are there other things that you look at when trying to make sure that polls are accurate? Yeah, I mean, it's everything in some sense. You know, the, the thing that I, I think we'll probably look at first in this case would be why those states, why those places, what hmm. characteristics did they share and see if that can give us a sense of what kind of uh, of things we should be looking at. Because all of the things you just listed off are things that that we, that pollsters look at all the time, um, both before and after elections, trying to figure out, is there anything in here that 
could throw things off? Is there a word, an errant word that I put in that that could be changing how people are responding? You know, there was the hmm. famous uh, instance in a in Iowa, um, you know, where Pete Buttigieg's name got left off some interviewer's screens, you know, just because of the way that they had sized their question font on the interviewer screen. Those are the kind. I mean, we worry oh, about wow. everything. Okay. Every right. single thing is a right. concern. Um, but but you know, now that now that we have the election results to compare it to, um, all that stuff will come up again. You know, and then the other bigger philosophical question is just what is the role of elections polling and what the, what should the role of elections polling be? You know, have we gotten to a place mm. where we're treating it in a way that it shouldn't be treated um, to the detriment both of the media and voters and pollsters? Um, you know, that's another question I think people are asking. Yeah, that that is an interesting question. Can you tell us a little bit about your company in particular and who you work with and what sorts of services um, Massing Poll offers? Sure. The Massing Polling Group was founded uh, about ten, just over ten years ago. Now um, we work with Massing, which is a nonprofit think tank. Um, in Boston, and we focus on policy for the most part. We do some amount of politics, and of course, politics and policy are intertwined in many ways. But the the vast majority of what we do is has to do with policy issues. So think education, like we'll be talking about today, climate change, transportation, taxes, you name it. You know, we're we're pulling on it. Pretty much anything that you hear in the public dialogue is the, are the things that we're pulling on. We work with organizations, um, including we do polls for Mass Inc. itself. We also do polls for many uh, foundations and businesses in the New England region and beyond. Um, we were the pollster for WBUR for a long time, just up until this year. Hmm. Um, unfortunately, you know, like many media outlets, they've had budget challenges this year, so that that has not continued. But that they were another longtime client, um, and you know, pretty much anybody who's got an interest in policy. Uh, or politics is someone that we might work with. We don't do any polls for parties and we don't do any polls for candidates. And that's something that uh, distinguishes us from many other uh, polling outfits that there are just because we're we're, uh, strictly nonpartisan. So during the pandemic, did it change the way that you worked or were you typically doing polling in in person or how how has it impacted at all? Yeah, we do polls... Um, using pretty much the entire range of methods, we actually do almost no in person at this, or no in person at this point, just because right. of you know the the in person interactions of all kinds have been curtailed, of course. But we've done we've done them in the past for things like when we were doing a survey of riders of the Silver Line bus, you know, that comes up from south right. of Boston and into yeah. downtown, and we went out to the bus stops and, you know, or had interviewers go out to the bus stops with iPads and phones and, you know, administer the survey to riders right there. Um, We do surveys by phone, a lot of surveys by phone, a lot of surveys on the internet. Um, It kind of depends on what the what the needs are and what the specific audience is that you're looking to reach. So Um, people still answer their phones? Uh, not as many as yeah. used to, uh, though we did see a very interesting uptick at the beginning of the pandemic when people were trapped in their homes. Hmm. <laughs> we saw an increase in response rates to telephone surveys. Um, but the thing that really changed during the pandemic was the things that we had to survey um, and hmm. the pressing issues that that people were having. You know, surveys in many ways um, are there's a demand for them when there's upheaval or when there's a crisis. 
because everybody, the stakeholders of many kinds need to know what their customers think about what's going on, what the issues are their constituents, if they're an elected official say, what the issues are their constituents are experiencing, you know, what things your riders, if you're the MBTA or someone who cares about transportation are going through, mm. you know, everything, when things are suddenly different, then surveys are a very quick way to find out what's going on, you know, to, to hear in a quicker way, usually than the the pace that official statistics tend to move at. You know, we can go out in a few days or a few weeks and find out, you know, what's going on, whereas waiting for the the local or state governments to kind of roll up all the numbers and collect them and so forth can take much longer. So that's the biggest thing that that really you know, uh, happened for us is there was an explosion of demand all of a sudden, you know, right at the very beginning of the pandemic. And it's pretty much continued through today. Right, because everything's still kind of tipped over and we haven't made sense of everything yet. And everything's still changing. You know, that's the other thing. I mean, as we'll talk about in a little bit, like there is not a a stable education situation that we can just go out and survey and find out, okay, this is exactly what's going on. I mean, Hmm. during the time that you're fielding it, the situation will change. Um, so it's, you know, we're, we're continuing to do surveys on a lot of these issues just because, you know, things changed right away and they're continuing to change. And, you know, looking at transportation, for instance, it's going to continue to change even going forward, you know? Right. Right. So nothing- no, that's, a, that's a really good point. You, so you recently did a poll with K through 12 parents in Massachusetts. It, can you talk a little bit about, I guess for let's start with the goal. What, what was, why did you do this survey? Well, the goal was uh, there were there were a few reasons. Um, first of all, it's a survey that's the second in a series of what will turn out to be four surveys uh, going back to the end of last school year, um, and like we were just talking about, to kind of document how things have changed and how things will change is one of the reasons why you know doing things again and again over time can be helpful. In terms right. of this specific survey, what we we were trying to do was a couple things. Um, for, first and foremost, we were trying to just document what parents said they were even doing this year. Um, You know, how many were hybrid? How many are remote? How many have children in person? How many have changed? How many are in pods? You know, all these questions that we hear, uh, that we read about in kind of anecdotal news coverage, we were trying to put some numbers to. And -hmm. this is an instance where there just weren't official numbers that really documented what parents were doing. Part of the reason that's important is that we also wanted to see what some of the socioeconomic differences were um, between who's doing what, so that later on, when we kind of understand a bit better what the impact of hybrid has been and what the impact of remote and in-person has been, that we have a sense of who's going to be most impacted by those, you know, those things that we learn about each one. Um, and then we are also trying to to carry on some to some trends that we looked at in the past, like how. Uh, how your access to technology has changed and whether you've got what you need and your family has what you need to, to participate fully in, in whatever school format you're in. Um, and then to just understand the impact to the best we can, to the best degree we, we can. Um, this is all, everything we're going to be talking about is all perception data. You know, we're talking about what parents think the impact is on their child. Um, right. You know, we'll find out later when when we get, you know, future kinds of assessment data back, what the impact actually was. And I think we'll be, it's not at all clear that it will be the same as what parents see is going on, um, but that this data is is just based on what parents interpret um, is happening with their kids. 
So let's get into the data. Um, where I guess maybe we should start with sort of a summary of the data. So, so who were you polling specifically? Because you you had kind of a wide spectrum of folks, and and how um, significant was the size of the survey? Right. So we surveyed one thousand five hundred and forty nine parents of school aged children across Massachusetts. So mm-hmm. it was a very very robust sample. We conducted it both online and on the phone in English and in Spanish, just to maximize who could participate in the survey. And the other thing that we did was we did oversamples of Black, Latino, and Asian parents to be sure that we could describe what they were going through separately. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, when you do just a representative sample, um, just because of the way the population is broken down, you end up with relatively small numbers of of Black, Latino, and Asian uh, voters, parents, whatever you're, whatever you're surveying. So... Um, but we, we knew and we saw in the first round and we can see just reading the news coverage that the, the impacts are are not at all um, the same across across Massachusetts and across demographic groups. So we wanted right. to be sure that we had enough um, that we could we could break those groups out separately. So let's let's go into what you found. So for me, and I think maybe we we're just talking about this offline for you, the the most interesting finding was around the type of education. You looked at families, you asked questions of families who were um, in remote situations, in in in-person school situations, and those who are in hybrid situations. Can you talk a little bit about what you found in, in terms of the answers to the questions you asked? Yeah, we found that that the parents that have children in hybrid are the most concerned of of any parents about their children falling behind, about the impact that the school year is having on their children academically and emotionally and so forth. Um, it's not what what we were. I think expecting was that you'd see a pretty close relationship with how much time you spent in the classroom being a relatively one-way street to mm-hmm. better interpretations of how the year was going. Uh, but that's not what we found. We found instead that that um, in-person does get much more positive ratings. If your child is somehow in person, you know, in many cases, for instance, private Catholic schools are full-time in person and some other schools also um, are, are doing full-time in person. Um, but it, but it but, was only about eleven percent, right, of your total. Right. Yeah. yeah it's a small so, so most of the families were not in that situation, but the exactly. ones that were were very happy. Yep. Uh, the vast majority are either in full remote or in hybrid. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we didn't know is how what the differences would be in terms of how parents interpreted their child's experience based on whether they were home all the time, or re- I should say remote all the time, or whether they were in a hybrid situation. Um, but so we, which uh, which did they prefer? being remote all the time or being hybrid all the time? Well, that was the really interesting thing is that um, that remote actually gets higher numbers, gets better numbers. Um, you know, it's not the same parents kind of picking between the two or rating the two, because in most cases, they don't have experience with both. But right. we can just look at the parents that are in remote and the parents that are in hybrid and see that the parents that are in remote tend to give um, give generally better numbers to their child's experience than do parents that are in that have kids in a hybrid situation. And what were you having? And I think that's an important point that that folks who were in remote were answering questions about being in remote, and those who were in hybrid were doing the same in parallel, but not overlapping and not judging a, a different scenario. So, so what sorts of questions did you ask in order to dig into what those experiences like for for, for families that let you? 
sort of ultimately say, you know, people seem to be preferring remote to hybrid. Yeah. Um, I should pause here and say that if you hear screaming in the background, it's because I have kids and I can hear that they're just breaking class right now. And um, you'll, you'll probably hear some noise in the background. Um, no, but we found we, we were looking at at uh, in each case, 46 percent of parents said that they had a child either in remote or in hybrid. Um, so mm-hmm. about the same number in either one. The vast majority were in one of them. Um, and then we broke that out by by demographic groups, because, uh, of course, that's one of the things that uh, that we've seen is that different districts are doing it different ways. And um, urban districts and large urban districts are much, much more likely to be in a remote only situation. Um, so the impact of that, of course, is that Black and Latino parents are much more likely to have children that are in a remote only situation. Um, parents that where Spanish is spoken at home, parents in urban areas, gateway city parents, lower income parents, all these groups are much more likely to say that they have uh, children in a remote only situation, whereas you contrast that with hybrid and it's basically the reverse. So there's these big socioeconomic splits between who who's doing what. But then to, to suss out exactly kind of what the impact what, or what the perceived impact was, we asked questions like, prior, prior to the coronavirus crisis, do you think your child's academics were at, behind, or ahead of grade level? And then how about now? Mm-hmm. That was one. And that one showed the biggest increase in parents saying that their child was behind among parents who had a child in a hybrid situation. So that was one that showed, you know, this impact of hybrid that we weren't necessarily expecting. Hmm. We also asked um, would, a question about whether parents thought the changes to the school year had a positive or negative impact on, and then we asked about academic learning, mental and emotional health, social and behavioral skills, and opportunities to form or maintain new friendships. And yeah. there too, we found that hybrid parents consistently across demographic groups um, were more negative than parents who had a child in remote. It's really interesting. So, and obviously you can't dig into the why, although it, 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 you could, you just need to do another poll with, with another set of questions. Yeah, that's going to be one of the things that we look into in, in future polls and focus groups, uh, which we do have, and one that um, kind of took us by surprise. So we didn't ask a whole bunch of follow-up questions about it, you know, to really kind of dig in on it. One thing we did ask is, or we, we do see is that it doesn't seem to be that parents are dissatisfied with the level of effort that their school is putting in. Yeah, um, that was interesting to me. Everyone yeah. seemed to be pr- pretty pretty trusting of the effort being put in by the school system and by the teachers. Right. And there was no difference there or very little difference um, between remote and hybrid uh, parents in terms of whether they thought their their district, their school and their teacher were doing the best they can. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't seem like they're dissatisfied with the level of effort. But so then what is it? You know, that's the big question, I think, that comes out of this and that we'll be looking at. I mean, right. I, every parent who's got children in any of these situations, I think, probably has theories. Um, you know, like I said, there's now screaming in the background. So like, take from that what you will. Um, right. But we don't really know if our own experiences are representative. So I'm looking forward to getting back out there and learning more about this. No, I know. It's interesting because I, I listened to my kids talk about um, remote situations. They're they're in, in class um, fully, but there are others who are attending class online. And you know they, the way that they describe it, based on how their f- friends review it, is that it's 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 very hard to follow a class that's live when you're sitting 
distant uh, online, which I think is it's probably very hard to teach a class like that too. It must be exhausting for the teachers. Right. And that, of course, there's also the difference between, you know, remote and hybrid in terms of whether or not you even have a teacher there with you live, you know, because one of the situations that a lot of school districts have, or one of the ways they've navigated the situation is if, if you're hybrid, then when you're not actually physically in the school building, you do not have a live teacher on the screen. You're doing some form of self-guided learning, or you have a, if you happen to have a tutor, you're in a pod or a parent or someone there to help you out. Um, then that's who you're learning from. But if you're fully remote, then there is a teacher that, you know, for all the problems with perhaps teaching on a screen, at least there is a teacher there kind of giving form and structure to your day. Um, So that's another possible theory as to what the difference might be. Yeah, interesting. Now, you just mentioned pods, and, and I thought your data was interesting because there was so much written about pods going into the fall um, school year that I just expected everyone was in a pod um, if you weren't able to go back to school in person. Um, but your data suggested something different. Yeah, I, I too was sort of, you know, following closely the news coverage and thinking that pods were potentially going to be pretty common and that there were going to be big socioeconomic divides. Yeah, We found 15% of parents in Massachusetts said that they were participating in some sort of pod, um, which matched a national poll that we found. Uh, mm-hmm. We went out looking for uh, other sources to um, compare ours to or validate or refute what we found and found that it pretty much exactly matched what another poll by by um, the NPU and Echelon, Echelon Insights found. So that that just the frequency was interesting. And then there wasn't really that much difference in terms of uh, demographics. So we looked at it by race, we looked at it by income, and there was only a couple points difference. It was not the case where, you know, some much larger number of wealthy white white parents were in a pod, um, right. you know, compared to everybody else, which was was the concern. I think it's fair to say that was the big concern going in was that the things that parents with more resources were going to be able to do was going to exacerbate the divide, the achievement gaps and divides that already existed. But that does not seem to have been what happens. Yeah, it's interesting. Will you dig into that in your next um, poll, though, and look at, you know, the circumstances of being in a suburb that was not deeply affected by COVID over the fall versus, you know, being a family that's living in um, tight quarters in an urban district, because I suspect, you know, part of the, you know, as I was reading about pods, it seemed like part of the pod strategy was um, really uh, social and um, to kind of help with the potential mental health impact of, you know, being in a remote learning situation. And so I wonder if, if still, I wonder if, if, if families feel like their kids got the same thing, just given their living circumstances and the density of the disease um, in the fall in both situations. Because I certainly saw lots of suburban kids still running around playing outside all fall. With, with That's friends. a great point. That's a great yeah. point. And th- there's a couple things on that. I mean, one is that certainly we're seeing the, um, you know, the difference between urban and suburban parents just in terms of what options have been available and what right. formats are available, just, just even going to school, you know, not even pods. Um, you know, and a lot of that does have to do with the, the 
COVID status of the particular communities. You know, right. it's not as much the case now, I don't believe, but it certainly right. was the case that, um, you know, COVID was so concentrated in dense urban areas that, uh, you know, it just had a huge impact on what options were available. Yeah, um, absolutely. But then in terms of pods, the other thing that, that we should look at is people mean different things, you know, and I think that's what you were kind of getting at is when right. you say pod, if you read, you know, pick any five articles, you'll see pretty different descriptions of what, you know, the writer means. In mm -hmm. some cases, it's we come together and we pay together to hire a tutor. You know, that was one thing that a pod meant. In other cases, right. it's like you said, it's social. It's not even necessarily learning together. You know, in other cases, it's we're coming together at least at the same house to learn together, even if we're not necessarily hiring a tutor. You know, there's just so many different things that that people mean you know we were trying to kind of come up with buckets that we could at least group people in you know that would be somewhat reliable but there but certainly there are infinite shades of gray between the ones the ways that we describe things yeah yeah absolutely what what did seem to come across very similarly and and i was surprised um was the data around what mattered to parents um because there was so much pressure on systems heading into the school year to get kids into school so that people could go back to work. And that wasn't really what was on the minds of parents primarily. Yeah, that's a great point. It was health and safety was the number one thing for sure, followed by academics. Um, you know, parents, I think, have in many cases put themselves, uh, you know, not first. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think I can yeah. say that reliably in terms of, yeah. you know, what their what their, the family's needs are. Um, there were some parents for sure who who prioritized, um, you know, work schedules and childcare and so forth. Mm -hmm. They tended to be the ones that ended up in in-person situations and perhaps paid for private or Catholic school options. But overall, the things that parents were much more likely to consider were health and safety uh, was number one. And then academics was was the second one. Um, you know, like I said, work schedules and childcare were, were pretty far down the list. Um, you know, that's not to say those things don't have impacts, because of course they do. We're seeing those show up in, you know, unemployment numbers. And, you know, we're seeing that there's a gender gap in unemployment and that, you know, women have taken, uh, have paid a much higher price than men have in terms of, um, you know, picking up the slack for uh, the the things that the school year and the complexities of the school year and home life have introduced. So right. certainly they, they have it's had hard for impact. the course, though, if you're a woman. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> there was, well, there was the article that I thought made a really good point, which is basically like, you know, in America, we've set it up so that women are the social safety net. Right. You know, in other countries, that's, right. that's just, that's not necessarily the way that it is. But here it's like, well, someone will pick things up. That seems to be the the policymakers, you know, position on many things or their, perhaps their mental shortcut for things. And the someone <laughs> has been women as it yes. has been in the past. So that's certainly been an impact. One for the women. Um, so when looking at when you were polling families, did it, did it matter at all what type of school, um, families were sending their kids to private or public or Catholic or charter, some other schools, did, did it change the way that they perceived, um, that perceived how well the school was taking care of those, the needs that they had listed as most important in terms of safety and wellness and, um, and academics, um, social, you know, social stability. It, 
was it sort of the same across any type of school? Yeah, parents who either did um, in-person, remote, or hybrid, or who ended up in a different type of school did prioritize different things. Um, for public school parents, you know, a big part of it was just, this is what the school district that I live in offered, and I don't really have another choice. Um, mm -hmm. Also, though, health and safety was even higher than that still, and by far the most important thing to public school parents. Um, looking then at private and Catholic school parents, academic and learning opportunities was also was much higher than it was for um, for other parents and uh you know, it, there, there, yes, there, there definitely was a difference in terms of what parents were prioritizing. I mean, we also can't, I think, undersell the role of just if you have the ability to or the option or the capacity to choose a Catholic or private school, you know, you, you may have done so. So I think that's some of what we're seeing where public school parents are more likely to say, well, this is what was offered, you know, whereas yeah. private and Catholic school parents have the, you know, the capacity and the privilege to be able to prioritize academic and learning opportunities and say, you know, we're going to pay the thousands or tens of thousands of dollars in tuition to change the situation for my child. Is interesting. So you think they feel like maybe more um, of a right to judge the product? Well, they, they have the capacity to be able mm -hmm. to, to pick, you know, right. as part of it. But, you know, there's also a question, I think, of what parents in different situations would have chosen just based on what was important. You know, we, we should certainly acknowledge the ability to pay um, as a factor, but it's also, you know, health and safety is a huge thing for a lot of parents. And right. a lot of these parents have lost family members, neighbors, you know, parents in some of the early hotspots, um, black and Latino parents are particularly likely to have lost people close to them. Um, so it, it's not only whether you could pay to send your child to a different school. A lot of it is also we need to protect our own family's health and our own family safety. Um, you know, even recognizing what the impacts of different school situations might be. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, did I read this next part of data correctly? What, is it true that folks who were in attending in-person school were less satisfied with their district and school and teachers than folks who are in a remote or hybrid situation? They didn't, they were less likely to think that their schools and uh, districts were doing the best they could. I, I didn't totally know what to make of that slide um, or what, or that particular fact. Yeah. Um, they were more positive about the impact that it would have on their child, for sure. Like that yep. was on the flip side of it. They were pretty, right. you know, positive about the impact, but I think that they were, uh, I don't know if it's a difference in expectations, but they did not perceive, they were less likely to perceive that their school teacher and district were doing, doing the best they can. Yeah. I wondered if it was like a judgment on execution or, or something like that. It could be for sure. And it also goes back to the whole um, fact that this is all pe perception data. Right. It's not like what will the ultimate grades be of the kids that are in each one of these situations. Um, and perceptions of course are, are built on 
you know, expectations partially. Right. Um, you know, what do you expect from the school that is either the one you've always sent your kid to or the one that you're now paying $20,000 a year to send your kid to? You know, you may have very different expectations depending on your situation. It's also comparisons. You know, what are you comparing your current situation to? Are you comparing it to last year and what your school, the fact that your school was pretty much shut down, you know, from March to June of last year? Or are you comparing it to, the school that you left to pay $20,000 a year to, you know, so there's all kinds of different things that this perception data is built on that, you know, makes some of the interpretation, um, you just have to kind of keep it in mind, I think, when you're, uh, you're puzzling over why some ratings seem to be lower, just that it's perception and not necessarily what the ultimate academic performance will be. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, to further that, though, it, it was interesting um, how parents are perceiving the impact of this crisis on their kids. It, they're they're very worried. It, it looks like. Yes, that's for sure. Um, first and foremost, just worried that more and more are worried that their kid is now behind grade level um, yeah. compared to before the pandemic. Um, we basically have three time periods. We have before the pandemic, then the first survey that we did back in May and June, and then this survey. And we're seeing sharp increases across race and socioeconomic uh, status uh, groupings in the percent who think that their child is now behind grade level. Um, we're also right. seeing a lot of concern about, even beyond academics, um, concerns about mental and emotional health, social and behavioral skills, and just friendships, you know, um, right. which obviously is such a big part of school. So yeah, a lot of a lot of concern about the impact this is having on kids. And and did that perception change based on race or income? It did, interestingly. Um, it it was white and upper income parents actually had more negative ratings um, of their the potential impact on their child um, than than uh, did Black and Latino parents or uh, lower income parents. So this is another one I think where we just have to think about you know expectations and perceptions and and right. kind of understanding what these what the impact actually might be. One of the things that changed it was if you could, if you had done um, any of a couple of things to change the situation, if you were in a pod, if you had hired someone to help, you know, your, your children learn, or if you had changed schools, any one of those three things, or if you were in person, that was actually the fourth, um, any one of those things gave you a much more positive perception of um, of how your child was doing. And then the other thing that made a difference was if you weren't doing any of those things, you were still more likely to be positive if your child was um, remote rather than hybrid. Whereas if your child is is um, in a hybrid situation and had not done any of the things like, you know, you're not in a pod, you, you hadn't changed schools or anything like that, that then you were the, you had the deepest negative um, or the deepest concerns about how, how this situation was impacting your child. It's so interesting. And that was about half of your survey respondents said that they were in a hybrid situation. So, okay, then the other the other big question on everyone's minds and that we hear about a lot is um, this digital divide and whether or not um, students have adequate devices and are connected. What did parents say to you about those two things? Right. One of the that was one of the big things that the survey at the end of last year found was that a big driver of when when students were disconnected, you know, physically and you know, uh, 
metaphorically from their their schools was technology access. Do you have enough right. devices and do you have enough good enough internet? Um, so there was a lot of focus over the summer in trying to improve device access um, and get computers or some sort of device in the hands of more students so that they could fully participate. And this was a this was a bright spot of the survey. Um, I wouldn't say work is done by any means, um, but but across a lot of different demographic groups, there was an improvement in the percent who said that they now have access to devices um, compared to the May and June survey. Um, unfortunately, we're still only at about 80% of parents who are in households with incomes under $50,000 who say they have enough devices. I know. So, that really bummed me out, as opposed to folks who make over $7,500,000. Um, it, like, it was in the high 90s, right? Not somewhere between... We're in the 90s then, right? Yeah. Even if we're, you know, it's 90% in the next income category, then 92, then 95. So you, yeah. you do get up there. Um, but, you know, 10 to 20% in the two lower income categories, you know, that's a lot of kids. It's a that's lot, a lot, lot of, of kids. A lot that's of families. Right. I mean, there was a lot of effort put into it. So there's two. there are two ways to look at it. One is it's better than it was in May and June. Mm-hmm. And the other is there's still a lot, there's still some distance to go. You know, this is how... The vast majority of kids are learning at least part of the time this year. So if you don't have enough devices to do what you need to do, then that's a problem. Um, right. You know, now, if you have a device, you need to be connected. They, it didn't seem like we had made great strides there at all. Right. And you know, one of the nuances is that you need to be connected better than you did back in May and June. Um, yeah. Because back in May and June, of course, a lot of the schools were were, um, I don't know what the right term is, but remote and asynchronous. You know, there there wasn't, in many cases, much or any live learning happening. Um, you know, whereas this year, there's a lot. If you're fully remote, it's, you know, most of the day, most days. And if you're hybrid, um, then, you know, there's still check-in meetings and that sort of thing. So the mm-hmm. amount, the quality of the internet that you need at this point is much higher. Um, so if you've got two or three kids now who are streaming some or all of the day and one or two parents working, you know, that's a lot, that's a much different category of internet than you might've needed when you just had to download, you know, be able to access, you know, some Google applications to kind of check in on your assignments and then complete them offline and send them in, you know, as was the situation back in March, April, May, and June for a lot of students. Um, So not a lot of progress there um, and, you know, still some work to do for sure. Yeah. And just, it's it's like 15% to over 20% of students who live in low income vulnerable situations are not, don't have the kind of internet access that they need in order to be successful in school. Right. And that's, that's a, uh, another good point is that it's, um, you know, we're also eight months into a economic or nine months, eight and a half, I guess, months into a full scale economic crisis. So it's not, it's both the demand for, you know, bandwidth has increased. And in many cases, people are less able to keep up on their bills and keep up on their, um, you know, cable and internet bills. So it's a, it's a challenge kind of pushing in both directions. Yeah. It's a double-edged sword. So who is using your data and what are they doing with it? 
Well, we've briefed the data to um, to a wide range of uh, of officials and you know state officials, and we know there were a lot of local officials who participated in the release event. So um, I know that there there's a lot of uh, kind of a lot of attention being paid both at the local and state level. We in most of our polling, we don't ultimately hear about you know this is exactly the, the decision that we made about it. We tend to hear you know, great data, positive feedback or nothing. And nothing mm-hmm. you, often means no one's using it, but, right. or can mean no one's using it. But in this case, we hear a lot about it. Um, we've gotten, you know, a lot of uh, media coverage for it and briefed a lot of local and state officials about it. So um, this one, I know it's, uh, it's been used. You know, what, the, what a survey like this does basically is it fills in an information gap where before we did it, there was just, um, a lack of information on a lot of these topics. Um, and you know, now, now the state and other local officials know how many people are in each situation and, you know, something we've got to figure out what's going on with hybrid, you know, the presumption that more class time meant parents would be happier and see their kids as happier. This data kind of calls that into question. So what's going on there? Is it, the schedule? Is it the technology? Is it the asynchronous time? Is it something else that we haven't thought of? Is it just the chaos that parents have to keep up with the different schedule every other day? Um, you know, it, it well, poses that kind of Well, and listen to their kids, right? And so it, it's interesting to, I mean, I, I think maybe part of their point of view is being shaped by the way that their kids are articulating their experiences and the experiences of their friends. And so it'd be interesting to understand how they're perceiving um the happiness or, or the, you know, how, how successful students feel like they can be in, in this type of situation. Yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing that I, I'm hoping that we'll be able to dig in on as, you know, we do more rounds of the survey. Yeah. So you have two more surveys that you'll do. And in addition to digging into hybrid, what, what were the other things that kind of piqued your curiosity and wanted you to want it made you want to dig in? Well, some of the things we'll be doing throughout the year is um, is tracking who's doing what, you know, mm-hmm. and then we also then we'll start to look forward, um, you know, for the next couple of surveys, because we've been up until now with a lot of the surveys we've done, this one included tracking what's been going on. But, you know, there's starting to be vaccines that are somewhere near approval and they'll start to roll out at some point for many people during the school year or near the end of the school year. So what do we do next? You know, how do we get out of this? What are the policy things that we need to be considering? What are the things that the state might want to do that parents think are necessary? You know, um, those are the kinds of things also that we'll be looking at over the next couple of surveys. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and given that safety was of primary concern, I'd be curious to see how people shift as as the vaccine and more testing and things are introduced into the community do do they do they shift what their priorities are or is that is are we going to take some time before people are willing to take a breath and feel like okay yeah, we're past this exactly and and it's both like what what is good for your family and then there will be policy things that you know the the districts and state have to consider like you know what is the vaccine status of the students and teachers and what does that mean relative to who can come back? You know, this year there was a right. flu vaccine mandate for the first time. Um, I think it was for the first time, if I'm not mistaken. So, I think it was, yeah. you know, what does that mean for a COVID vaccine? You know, these are the kinds of things that we'll, that 
policymakers will start to consider. And our goal really is to bring information that's useful to people who are making decisions. Um, so I'm sure we'll be focusing on the things that that are on their minds as well. Well, Steve, it was amazing to talk to you. I really appreciate you joining us today to share um, your, the learnings from your most recent poll. And uh, I look forward to staying in touch and maybe we'll do another one to kind of update folks on what back to school looks like. Sounds good. I look forward to it. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Steve Casella. It was interesting to hear the results of his poll, which generally correlate to a recent poll done by Pew Research with families across the country. We continue to encourage academic institutions everywhere to think out of the box to solve the issues caused by the pandemic. We're in a new paradigm and we need to rethink how we use all of our assets, teachers, buildings, parents, technology, parks, etc., to serve today's students and the future of America in the best way possible. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.